I think some of it is just sort of like physical distaste or discomfort with the idea that these processes are sort of involved to be blunt, like sort of like fluids, right? Whether it's like breast milk or menstrual blood or things like that, things that sort of seem like physically messy and there's some sort of stigma or distaste around that. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Taboo Trades Podcast, a show about stuff we aren't supposed to sell, but do anyway. I'm your host, Kim Kravick. My guests today are Bridget Crawford and Emily Waldman of Pace University School of Law. Bridget Crawford's scholarship focuses on taxation and gender and the law. She teaches courses on federal income taxation, estate and gift taxation, and wills, trusts, and estates. Emily Waldman teaches courses on constitutional law, law and education, employment law, and civil procedure. Today, we're discussing their book, Menstruation Matters, Challenging the Law's Silence on Periods, published by NYU Press in 2022, and their 2022 article, Contextualizing Menopause and the Law, co-authored with my UVA colleague, Naomi Khan, and published in the Harvard Journal of Gender and the Law. Kate and Jenna, why don't you guys introduce yourselves to the podcast audience? Hi, everybody. I'm Kate. Uh, I'm a double who, so I'm a third-year law student. I graduated from UVA with a gender studies degree in 2021, um, which is sort of what led me to this hosting this particular episode about menstruation. Uh, Definitely a topic that I had a lot of firsthand experience with, but also I'm really curious about um, studying the way that this almost universal experience um, affects the populations and the different populations. And it's something that I'm really curious to learn more about. And I'm really excited to speak to our hosts about. Hi, my name is Jenna Smith. Um, I, unlike Kate, don't have a super intensive background in gender studies, but I think it's such an interesting topic. And I think especially for this class, delving into such a common market that we barely ever talk about, it's really the perfect topic for taboo trade. So I'm really excited to you know speak with our hosts today. You guys both volunteered to be the co-hosts for this episode. And Kate, you've already talked a little bit about what motivated that decision. Can you talk a little bit more about what made you want to choose this topic and these authors to be the ones that you were the co-host for? Absolutely. So like I said, I was a gender studies major. Um, I more studied the sort of like broad social implications and so never really getting into what felt like the nitty gritty experience of like being a woman or having a female body, that sort of thing. And so all of our topics were so interesting. But when I saw one that was so aligned with gender and sort of aligned with the work I see myself doing long term in my career about female autonomy and that sort of legal protections for that, um, it just seemed like a really good fit. And I was really excited to learn about what work already exists in this space uh, that is so tangible uh, for so many people. And Jenna, what about you? Uh, kind of similar here. I feel like as a woman, these are experiences that you know we go through in our everyday lives, but I feel like I don't really know much about the market behind it. So I thought it would be really cool to kind of learn by doing, by volunteering for this topic. Um, I'll stick with you, Jenna. What do you hope to learn from 
the authors today or what sort of questions do you hope they'll answer for you? I just, I'm really interested in just learning a little bit more about their backgrounds and what drove them to get into this specific type of research. Because it's something that's a part of everyday life, but so few people really dig deep into it. So I'm curious, like what inspired them to do that? Kate, what about you? Yeah. uh, I mean, the sort of piece we're read and discussed is about like the silence of the law on periods. And so it's such a broad thing. There's so much to learn about because it's so little that's actually talked about. Um, So that's what I'm most excited for is just like diving headfirst into the stigma and having conversations that like people just don't have about this experience of menstruation and menopause on and but half more than half the population experiences it. Yeah, I'm with both of you. I'm interested, as Jenna said, in sort of how they came to this topic, what prompted their interest, but also going to the stigma issue. I mean, I'm interested in whether they feel that they've experienced any stigma in terms of researching this. How do their colleagues react? What's been the acceptance? I mean, clearly they have a book coming out on this. This is what we're discussing. So they've been successful with the topic, but I am interested in whether they think there have been any specific hurdles to promoting and presenting their research, given, again, the taboo surrounding the discussion of menstruation and menopause. Jenna, anything else from you? I think I'm good. Okay. Kate? Nope. Just excited to get started. Great. Emily, it's nice to meet you. It's really nice to meet you and see everybody. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for agreeing to do it. We're all very excited. Bridget. Hello. Hello. Welcome again. And I think we're going to start by just turning it over to Kate. Hi, Emily. Hi, Bridget. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for being with us. Really enjoyed uh, reading your work and I'm super excited for this discussion. Um, Our first sort of section of questions is about the variable experience of menstruation and finding balance in that. Um, So several times throughout the excerpt, the sort of the fact that the experience of menstruation varies from person to person is mentioned in support of the notion that painting it as like a wholly negative experience uh, reinforces negative stereotypes about menstruation. Um, I understand and also to an extent accept this premise. However, I also feel like elementary school sex ed and American Girls seminal book, The Care and Keeping of You, kind of reinforce the idea that every woman's body is different. And I do think this mindset kind of led me to contribute to my severe menstruation symptoms, like I thinking they were normal, which delayed getting treatment for them. How do we inform people about uh, what things are medically abnormal and dangerous while respecting that everyone does have a different experience? And do you feel like stigma is the only reason people aren't talking about menstruation or does the sort of constant telling of girls that it's supposed to be different obscure symptoms that are not normal? I think that's a really interesting question because on the one hand, it does vary for everybody. On the other hand, if anybody is really having a lot of discomfort, they should get treatment for it, or they should at least look into what types of treatments are available. And so you want to sort of, I think, get both messages out because whether it's normal or not to be in a lot of discomfort, even if it's normal, there are still different, you know, treatments that might help alleviate it. And so I think part of the importance is just making sure that people are talking about it. It doesn't mean they have to like be talking about it with everybody if they don't want to, but at least talking about it with healthcare providers or maybe leading up to that, talking about it with somebody. I really appreciate your question, Kate, because you're sort of inviting us to consider um, what role stigma is playing. And I think we have to first understand stigma 
as a silencing uh, force here. And silencing is the reason that uh, people don't talk about uh, their menstruation experience to even get at this question of what is uh, within the range of variability. But in all of this discussion of everybody is different, we also have to highlight, as Emily said, that severe pain is not uh, inevitable or something that should be accepted. That everyone having an idiosyncratic experience doesn't mean that they have to accept uh, pain, extreme bleeding, debilitating uh, cramps. So I, I like your question because it's really inviting us to both do away with stigma, but then also let's not sort of hide behind difference as being a reason not to talk about the right to have a medical treatment that addresses debilitating uh, menstruation-related symptoms, which not everyone has, but some people do. Um, and and those are important to, to talk about as well. One, th one thing I'll just add, it made me think about something I hadn't focused on quite so much before. Sometimes the idea that things are normal is almost like itself a silencing thing. We've seen this um, with other things, like with our research um, on menopause, where people are like, oh, well, you have this thing. Well, that's normal. So that, you know, you have hot flashes or you have sleep disturbances. Well, that's normal. So that means that you just got to like deal with it and suck it up. And you're not entitled to any sort of modification or accommodation because it's normal. And the whole sort of normal, abnormal as like a binary thing can really be problematic. And same with menstruation, right? Maybe it is normal, at least not atypical to have really bad cramps, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do anything about it or that you shouldn't be entitled to some sort of modifications just because it's something that a lot of people have. It can still have a real effect on you. And if there are modifications that or treatments that would help you deal with it, you should get them, even if it is normal. Thank you so much for that. Since we were talking about stigma and silence, one of the things that um, Jenna, Kate, and I were discussing before you guys joined us was what, whether any stigma or silence accompanied your research, especially when you first embarked on it. What is the, I mean, obviously you've had, a, you know, a fair amount of success. I've seen you guys presenting at conferences and you have, you know, two books and a number of papers, but was there any hurdles that you thought you might've had to overcome given the subject matter that wouldn't have, you wouldn't have been if you had been writing about something that affected 50%, the other 50% of the population? Yes, absolutely. And I remember very clearly the very first time I presented my work about uh, uh, the tampon tax and human rights to our faculty at Pace. And there were two of my male colleagues sitting right in the front of the audience who laughed throughout most of my presentation, thinking everything I said was incredibly funny. And although you know, I like a lively presentation as much as everyone. Um, menstruation is a topic that deserves serious scholarly treatment. And I suspect if we had been talking about a, a, a medical, uh, biological, inevitable bodily function that uh, half the 
other half of the population experiences exactly as you said, uh, that would not have been my experience. That being said, I think out of that act of presenting to the faculty, a lot of doors were opened. And the most important was the collaboration that started between Emily and me, because it was my coming at it at, at these questions of menstruation and law from a tax angle uh, that really um, allowed uh, for a very fruitful partnership to begin because Emily, with her experience in employment law and constitutional law and education law, said, wow, I can see how these things fit together. And so I would endure that uh, laughter again uh, because I think we're really onto something. And I, I think we're really proud of our work having practical impact around. I agree. I, I don't, within academia, it's what Bridget is saying. I absolutely remember that. In general, I haven't found that we've encountered that much. Sometimes I'll be completely honest, just in my own life, people hear that I wrote a book say, oh, what's it about? Like there's, there are sometimes we're depending on who it is, you know, like it's the random father of like one of my kids' friends, or they'll say like, have you ever written a book? And like, sometimes I'm like, oh, do I really want to start talking about this with this random person? <laughs> I don't really know. You know, it's more like that. Not that they would say anything rude, but there is this sense. And I guess I think part of it is the stigma around menstruation or just generally talking about bodily functions, right? That's just not something we talk about so much. So it's not like the it's like intriguing to people, but sometimes I have, I feel like, oh, I don't know if I feel like getting into it with someone I don't know that well. Yeah. We have found more resistance or more silence in response to the mention of our new project, which is a book co-authored with Naomi Khan about the intersections of menopause and the law. Young people of all gender identities, when we mention that we're working on menstruation, they're like, Yes, I get it. That's important. I see that as a just issue. But because of the ageism um, and sexism double whammy associated with um, with uh, menopausal bodies, the reception has been a little less um, enthusiastic. And we're hoping to change the dialogue there, too, because uh, all of the same issues of stigma, taboo, um, and what's normal come up again and again at various life stages with different um, biological related uh, processes and life events. Yeah. Thank you for that. And we do have a number of questions about the new project and about menopause coming up from the students. Let's go on to Jenna. Hi, Bridget and Emily. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, so for me, when talking about this topic, I find it a little bit hard to strike the right balance. On one hand, periods are an experience that half the population deals with, and there's absolutely no reason for it to be as taboo of a topic as it is. People should be able to talk about the impact that it has on their lives. Um, but then on the other hand, like a menstruating person isn't necessarily like unable to function normally in society. And I worry that like a strong focus on it could lead to a little bit more like marginalization and discrimination. So as scholars who talk about this topic, like how do you balance these realities? So I think I think both of those are true. I think, yeah, there is no reason for it to be taboo. And at the same time, you don't want to overemphasize it and make it seem like it's this huge obstacle that people face. And 
I think we tried to strike that balance in our book just by emphasizing that different people are affected differently and many people may not need any sort of modifications made or anything like that, but that some people do. And that the ultimate point is that menstruation shouldn't be holding anyone back from full participation. And for some people, it already isn't holding them back at all. And then for others who are just sort of thinking about how that's happening and what could change about it. I think, Jenna, your point is super important because menstruation is not a disability, right? And so we have kept our eyes on legislation in jurisdictions like Spain that now provide for menstrual leave. And I think reasonable minds can disagree whether that is a a boost or a cost and a potential site of further discrimination. I myself am concerned about something like menstruation leave um, because of uh, the experience in countries that have had it. We find that folks who menstruate are reluctant to take that leave for fear of being stigmatized or uh, fear of being discriminated against. So maybe it's a symbolic victory, but then again, um, menstruation isn't a disability. And I think the opportunity for employees, other employees who have to, quote, pick up the slack of employees who are out consistently every month could learn to a uh, could lead uh, to uh, some not only internal tensions, but potentially systematic uh, discrimination. Thank you so much. Um, So we're going to move into our next section, which is the role of law and sort of legal systems. And the first question in that is from my classmate, Dennis. Thanks, Kate. And thank you so much for taking our questions. Um, So during the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the bright spots was the CARES Act provision that allowed funds from tax-advantaged health savings accounts to be used for purchasing menstrual care products. Um, And uh, I think the exact language um, that was used from the uh, the book we read was that the change laid the groundwork for additional and more expansive policy reform. So I'm curious to to hear your thoughts on what future changes do you foresee with uh, coming from that CARES Act provision that acknowledged the medical necessity of these menstrual products? Um, for example, could this eventually lead to a similar uh, period products act that uh, Scotland enacted uh, being um, being something we see here in the States as well? Honestly, I think it's unlikely that anything as expansive as what happened in Scotland would happen here. One on another front, something that is coming down the pike was that a law was recently passed called the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which um, requires accommodations for pregnant employees. Um, And it doesn't require those employees to show that like they're having a back to this normal, abnormal dichotomy. They don't have to show that they're having some sort of abnormal pregnancy in order to be entitled to an accommodation, right? They have this sort of freestanding entitlement to reasonable accommodations that their doctors are recommending. So for example, like not having to lift something that's heavy or things like that. And one of the interesting things, you're wondering, how does this connect to menstruation? Well, one of the interesting things is that there is a real push to get um, menstruation sort of folded in as a condition related to pregnancy so that employers would also have to make accommodations that reasonable accommodations that employees need for things related to menstruation. 
asterisk, there's also now at least a push among some scholars we know, which we've signed on to to try to get menopause folded into that too. But that I think is an area where we may see more legal change in the future. Um, I don't think some sort of broad thing in terms of providing free menstrual products to everyone who needs them is on the horizon, though there has been growth in terms of states passing laws about doing that in schools. Oh, thank you for that. All right. Thank you so much. And then our next question is going to come from Julia. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you mentioned workplace accommodations like menstrual leave and the possible downsides of those policies, like potential hiring discrimination and stigma against eligible workers who use those accommodations. Um, I was wondering if you think that there's a way to implement those those policies that would work better in practice and also whether you think that those types of accommodations are necessary in the first place because people aren't actually getting appropriate diagnoses and medical care for menstrual conditions and pain. Okay, so I'll, I'll start with this and Bridget can add stuff if she wants to. One thing I'll say um, that we thought was really interesting that we talked about a bit in the book with menstrual leave, like why you know, can that lead to a backlash? There was a really interesting study conducted by researchers that indeed found that the respondents, on the one hand, they were sort of supportive of the idea of menstrual leave for people who needed it, but then they also expressed a lot of negatives, a lot of concerns. And it really seemed like where we thought that came from was people are worried about how it's going to affect them. Like if other people take this, is more work going to fall on me? It was sort of seeing things as like a zero-sum game. If these people are getting leave, the people who are saying they need it for menstruation-related reasons, who's going to pick up the slack? Will that create more work for me? What if I needed time off for something else? As opposed to, let's say, like providing free menstrual products to students in school or people in prison. There's less of like a zero-sum game, right? It's just Products are available. Anyone who needs them can get them. There's less of this idea that people are going to lose out. Whereas when it's your colleague is getting to take time off, you feel like that might negatively affect you. So in terms of what could be a better strategy for employers that want to be accommodating, what these researchers thought, which made sense to us, was the more sort of broad-based these are the better. So rather than it's like specific menstrual leave policy, like having sort of more flexible workplaces in general, right? That for any number of reasons, if somebody isn't feeling well and needs to work remotely on a particular day, right? And the more that it's framed in terms of something that everyone can benefit from, there's less of the potential for resentment and backlash. Um, and same with menopause and things like that, right? The more that it's about moving from like accommodating one particular employee to just having workplaces that are more generally accommodating, like everyone can buy into that because everyone feels like they might benefit from it too. Thank you. All right. Our next question will be from Amina. Hi. So I was wondering during the discussion in the book that you talked about recognizing conditions like pregnancy and menstruation as signs of fertility versus labeling menopause as a sign of infertility, which has a more negative connotation. And that's how people seem to perceive the different categories and that had a more general tone of ageism. So do you think that protections against age discrimination can bolster menopause protections? And if so, how? One of the things we're very interested in is how to build a menopause movement. Where would we find support 
Um, and very interestingly, uh, AARP, formerly known as the American Association of Retired Persons, is very interested in these topics of of potential uh, menopause-related leave, for example. And why is that? Because an extraordinary extraordinary number of older workers are still um, employed in the workforce. And also as folks get older, they find themselves um, having increased responsibility for parents or partners who are aging, and they themselves would benefit from time off. So we are thinking about where um, the impetus for change can come from And we think there's a a great synergy uh, if we can communicate how we all can benefit from more flexibility in the workplace. But one of the things that that we have been focused on, and I'll turn it to Emily so she can talk a little bit more about the the way the law takes a a different approach, depending uh, whether there are children involved or potential children versus the absence of children. Yeah, so one of the things that we've noticed, sort of one of our theories for why there has been so much more of a legal push over the years to have accommodations for pregnancy and breastfeeding is that there's a there's a baby involved um, with breastfeeding and there's the possibility of a baby you know, or a fetus involved with pregnancy. If you look at the rhetoric that surrounds laws like requiring breastfeeding accommodations, often it's not even about the employee. They're like, well, it's so important to the baby's health for um, the baby to get breast milk. So we're sort of doing it for that. Or in the context of pregnancy, um, one really interesting thing is that even before the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act was passed on the federal level, you had a number of states requiring pregnancy accommodations on the state level, and it was sort of held up as this one issue that like pro-choice and pro-life people could agree on because everybody wants, you know, what's best for the fetus. So pro-life people talking about we don't want someone to be lifting a lot and then have a miscarriage. So like this whole sort of fetal protection rationale or um, baby protection rationale just doesn't exist with menstruation and especially with menopause, right? And so you're absolutely right. Menopause in particular really is not about potential fertility, let alone like an actual baby. And so it's it's implicating a different set of interests. I really like this part of the book, by the way. It's I had not thought of that explanation before, and yet it made a lot of sense as I read it. It just seems really quite intuitive, especially when combined with the data. I feel like there has been more focus lately on maternal health outcomes in the U.S. being much poorer than they should be, while um, when it comes to um um, to to infant care and 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 baby care, right? And and sort of this kind of seemed consistent with that entire story to me in some way. All right, thank you so much. And then I think uh, we have our next question on this topic from Mary Beth. Hi, Bridget. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for joining us today. My question kind of also touches on accommodations for people, but specifically, I wanted to ask about educational environments and. Because when I was reading the excerpts we were given, law school popped into my 
head just because as a 1L, um, my 1L doctrinals, like I had many professors either outright say, do not use the bathroom during my class, or they discouraged us from using the bathroom during class. Um, and then along with that, there's this pressure of, I don't want to go during class because I don't want to miss anything at all. Um, and then in between classes, we'd often just have 10 minutes in between classes. The women's restrooms would have lines that were so long because everyone would be going at the same time um, that it was just impossible to go and make your next class in time. Um, so all that being said, I'm just curious about what you both think educational institutions in general um, maybe law school specifically, if you have any law school specific ideas, but what educational institutions in general can do to like correct these blind sites that harm menstruating people. So yeah. Yes. So I remember a similar experience, not so much in law school, but I vividly remember a high school English class where the English teacher told us all at the beginning of the year, you know, you cannot go to the bathroom during class. I will let you go one time if it's an emergency. And I distinctly remember someone at one point saying, I have to go to the bathroom and, and the teacher saying, well, like, is this your one emergency? And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, what if I have two emergencies <laughs> over the course? You know, that like stress of like when you would use it. And I really stuck with me as like an example of teachers sort of being unfair and abusing their power. And I don't even think I was thinking about it specifically in terms of the gendered implications and menstruation, but just in general, like you could have other neat reasons why it's an emergency to go to the bathroom and it could happen more than once. And, but it did stay with me. And when we started working on this project, when in our chapter um, about periods in schools, um, a lot of it talked about other things like providing period products and things like that. But we also thought about policies that have a, like sort of facially neutral policies, but that are having a disparate impact with respect to menstruation. Right. And then obviously that has natural um, implications in terms of having a disparate impact with respect to sex. So one of them was uniforms, having to wear light colored uniforms that can show menstrual stains. But another was those sort of policies where teachers are super strict about letting students go to the bathroom or like sort of interrogating them about like, well, why do you need to go? And what we saw at least with sort of younger students like middle school and high school was that this sort of stress sometimes even prompts p people to not go to school at all when they have their period or like leave early because they just don't want to be stuck in an embarrassing or uncomfortable situation. And students tend to be like terrified by the thought of having anyone at school realize that they have their period, like let alone a teacher, let alone having to say that. And so at a minimum, um, I think really those types of policies are problematic at the law school level. I think, you know, people are a little bit less cowed by teachers than like 13 year olds, but still when you have your professor making it seem like going to the bathroom shows like some sort of disrespect or that you don't care about the class. I think it puts people in a really uncomfortable, unfair position when probably they don't want to have to get up and miss class. And now they're in this, you know, sort of awkward, impossible situation. So obviously you can't tell professors that they have to stop class for everyone when someone is going so that they don't miss anything. That wouldn't be reasonable. And that would probably make that person also feel embarrassed. But I think professors really have to understand that they should not be telling people they shouldn't go to the bathroom or sort of making them feel uncomfortable about it. One of the questions that guided all of our, uh, our research and our writing was what would the world look like 
if it took menstruation into account? How would things like law school classroom rules be different? And I think we all know if uh, the world were designed around the physical needs of half the population, there wouldn't be a rule like that. And although I like to think that law professors are more educated than many folks, the fact is a lot of men simply don't understand the basics of menstruation. They don't understand that it's not something we can control. They don't understand that depending on one's um, other medical issues, um, menstruation may come on very quickly and it is possible to bleed through one's clothes unexpectedly. We don't always know when our periods are coming. We don't know how heavy they will be. And no matter how prepared we are, uh, there can be reasons that one does need to get up in the middle of class. And so I would encourage any law students who are issuing or who are listening to this podcast or law professors or anyone involved in education, um, think about uh, what one can do institutionally to educate the faculty on precisely that question. What would the world look like if it took menstruation into account? And if you have a women's association of law students or a committee at your school um, that addresses uh, classroom policies or other career issues, uh, sometimes all it takes is someone just mentioning hey, this has a disparate impact on folks who are menstruating. Um, and I, I believe that our colleagues of good faith will step up and respond appropriately and accordingly. Sometimes they're just perpetuating the same system that they were uh, taught under uh, when there were no women in law school. So we, we can do better and I think we will do better and we should all be empowered to speak up to ask for what we need and deserve. I really love that response. Uh, I will never forget being in high school and utterly terrifying my AP history teacher when I said when he accused me of leaving the room too many times for going to the nurse. And I said, oh, I just have a lot of really bad cramps. And he went, ah, um, <laughs> and just screamed. So I really appreciate that sort of call to action. Um, and this transitions really well into our next subject area about the sort of social perceptions of menstruation and menopause and the role they, that, that those perceptions have in business and educational institutions. And kicking off that section is Darius. Hi, Bridget and Emily. Nice to meet you both. Um, in your book, Contextualizing Menopause in the Law, you both write about how the negative attitudes of menopause, menstruation, pregnancy, and breastfeeding stem from sexism. Is there a suggestion that this sexism is more rooted in a type of gynophobia or potentially influenced by capitalist notions that regard these aspects of womanhood as less efficient? Or are there other factors at play that contribute to these attitudes? I think maybe some of it, if I'm understanding the question, the sexism, I think, comes from a couple different angles. Um, I think some of it is just sort of like physical distaste or discomfort with the idea that these processes are sort of involved to be blunt, like sort of like fluids, right? Whether it's like breast milk or menstrual blood or things like that, things that sort of seem like physically messy and there's some sort of stigma or distaste around that. 
And I think another piece is this idea that they all involve hormones. And so sort of this idea that people undergoing any of these processes, think about like sort of the stereotypes of them being hormonal, right? Like that someone getting their period, oh, they have bad PMS, they're in a bad mood, they're moody. That is also applied to um, menopause, right? That people are moody because, oh, are you going through menopause and things like that? Um, Same with pregnancy too, right? Like, oh, you must have pregnancy brain. So there's this idea that the hormones are making people like the people who are having those conditions less competent in the workplace, in addition to this sort of physical distaste. And then I think not so much with menopause, but with the pregnancy and breastfeeding, then there's also this idea of now there's a baby in the mix. And on the one hand, we talked about how that sort of prompts these laws that are kind of protective. But on the other hand, they're raising the idea that maybe the employee now isn't thinking so much about work because she's about to have a baby or she does have a baby. So I think it's all of those things together that lead to those negative attitudes, right? Like the physical sort of stickiness and messiness, the hormones that are affecting, like theoretically affecting psychology or mood or things like that. And then the idea that, oh, you're a mother. So now you don't care about work. One of the things Darius and I talked about as we were discussing this question and your work on this was whether in addition to all of the things you just mentioned, whether there's just kind of a default notion of the ideal worker and that ideal worker doesn't menstruate or get pregnant or need to express milk or breastfeed or any of those things, right? And uh, sure, those things may have some costs from an efficient workplace perspective, but so do lots of stereotypically or solely male behaviors, right? In a way that I'm not sure we think about it in the same way. And I think that's what Darius was getting at with his question about like sort of efficiency and capitalism is whether we just have this idea of like what a good worker is and that worker doesn't do any of these things. I think that's exactly right. Um, the, the, the leaky body or the unpredictable body is uh, a trope that has been uh, in culture uh, all the time. Uh, you know, going back to Shakespeare, where Portia stabs herself um, uh, to to prove that she is uh, a voluntary bleeder, not an involuntary bleeder, to show that she is worthy and belongs in the male arena. Uh, this notion is um, that the leaky body, the involuntarily leaky body or the unpredictable body in menopause is somehow less than. Um, and um, granted, uh, let's be cognizant of the fact that uh, many, many women have always worked. Uh, Black women in this country have always worked uh, and have never uh, been, have always worked uh, outside the home in addition to inside the home. But it, for the stereotypical notion, I think there is some truth that um, th- that the leaky and unpredictable body belongs in the private sphere and only the predictable body is a worthy uh, participant in the capitalist marketplace economy. But of course, the racial realities of the United States uh, give lie to exactly um, the uh, way in which that metaphor has never been true um, and uh, hurts all of us. 
Thank you both. Thank you so much. That was such an insightful perspective. Um, and then we have a new up next. Hi, <clears throat> thank you so much for being here. Um, I was in a similar vein, kind of reflecting on the general role that the patriarchy plays in discrimination against individuals who menstruate. Um, while I was doing this reading, and I thought back to a discussion that I frequently had with my friends, which is about the painful experience of getting an IUD placed. Um, you know, typically doctors do not provide us with any kind of pain medication, um, you know, despite the procedure being so invasive. But um, like amongst my friends, we've always talked about how like if men were the ones who had to have them placed, they would likely get pain medication for it in the same way um, that we see it's quite commonplace for there to be free condoms available. But on the other hand, I've always wondered if men were the ones who menstruated, would period products be free or more easily accessible and what you thought about that? Well, it's funny. I don't know if any of you have seen Gloria Steinem. Uh, a number of decades ago, wrote this whole really sort of funny satirical piece about if men could menstruate. And it was talking about all those sorts of things, like if men could menstruate, period products would be free and there would be no stigma. People would be bragging about how much they menstruate, like he's a three pad man and things like that. So I think, sure, when you think about the counterfactual, it's hard not to think it would be different. Um, what I think is really interesting, too, about that IUD comment is it comes back to, I think, the very first question when we were talking about this idea of it's normal almost being like a double-edged sword, right? Like, on the one hand, you don't want to pathologize menstruation and other sort of natural conditions inevitably experienced by half the population, right? So you don't want to say it's abnormal, normal. But on the other hand, the fact that it's normal can mean, number one, you know, you, you're not entitled to accommodations under the law. And number two, it can be sort of a dismissing thing from doctors, right? It, it reminds me of what Kate was saying, right? It's normal to have all this pain. So don't do anything about it. It's similar with the IUD point. And so I think that normal thing is, it really is a double-edged sword. You want it, you want it to be normal. We want it to be normal, but we don't want to sort of minimize the pain that's attached to it. It makes me think too, I don't know if anyone saw it, there was a really interesting New York Times article in the past year about extreme nausea during pregnancy, hyperemesis, and how that was another thing that just like, oh, that's normal. That just happens to some people. Maybe it's psychological. And it took this incredible researcher, um, this woman who um, in her own life had had very serious um, hyperemesis and actually had a miscarriage as a result. And she was this incredible researcher and she devoted her life to looking at it. Turns out there's like a specific sort of scientific thing, a specific gene that some people have for why they experienced it. So it wasn't just, oh, being nauseous is normal, right? It really is important to get beyond that. And I think the same thing is going on with the IUD thing on a smaller scale. Oh, it's like not a big deal. That's normal. Everyone feels a little pain. Um, we have to move past that. I think women's pain um, is routinely underestimated by everyone in the healthcare system, both men and women. There is this false belief that women are oversensitive, that they exaggerate, um, and that men are stoic. Um, and unfortunately, um, there are too many stories of women uh, who's uh, suffering is dismissed and the same uh, is true of uh, black and brown folks as well. Their pain gets dismissed or their 
uh, stereotyped as drug seeking uh, when they ask for pain relief. And that's um, that's something that we need to continually uh, speak against and um, and and always uh, assert your right uh, to be listened uh, to. And if you have the ability to switch providers when your pain isn't been being taken seriously, uh, we have to do that too. Of course, not everyone has that that ability to switch providers, um, but that to the extent that exists as an option, um, I always like remind myself and my family and my friends of that. Uh, and so our next question is going to be from Gabriel. Hi, thank you for joining us. Um, so it is shocking that so many people in our society menstruate, and yet we don't have a sophisticated vocabulary for menstruation. I think this is one of many examples where a thing that only happens to a subset of the population is easier to pathologize than are things that happen to all or most people. As we push for more sophisticated understandings of menstruation, how do we draw a bigger circle around menstruation to show that everyone should care about menstrual equity? That is the challenge for all of us who care about um, issues of uh, gender equity in the workplace and school, uh, in our political life, in our home lives. This is uh, really a, a challenge. Lots of our colleagues who work in this space would say, well, it starts with education. And shockingly, um, not every public school system is required to provide menstruation-related education, and even in schools where it is required or in states where it is required, it's not required to be medically accurate. So there is a, a, a challenge right there, a structural challenge when we're not getting this information to kids in school. And for those of us who did have menstruation-related education in school, sometimes the experience is the boys go to one world room, the girls go to another room. And of course, that's uh, problematic for kids uh, who don't uh, identify as either gender. They're forced to choose in a way that may be uncomfortable or to out themselves. Uh, but also it means um, that sometimes uh, the education is gender segregated and not everyone gets the same information. And that's really a, a shame. I, I, there is one study we can try to 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 pull it up uh, where uh, a, a group of I believe college aged men were surveyed and asked, uh, "Do you believe that menstruation is painful?" And they all said, a very high degree said, "Yes, we we believe that menstruation can be painful." But that same group of people thought that women faked or exaggerated their symptoms as well. So we are uh, extraordinary tears that can hold multiple ideas at one time. And, um, and you are really inviting us, you are really inviting us, um, Gabriel, to think widely and broadly and inclusively because cutting off the talents, the popular uh, and, and potential and participation of half of the population makes absolutely no sense to anyone. So I'd like to start with the schools, um, but that's problematic. 
Um, but we can expand out from there. Yeah, I'm remembering the study or it was research that I I remember we heard about from it was a medical student with, with men sort of simultaneously thinking of menstruation as very debilitating, but yet also sort of thinking that women were exaggerating. And it was like, how could that be both? I think you're absolutely right. Everyone needs to have more of an understanding. And then I think one sort of related point is the one we talked about earlier is that when we're thinking about solutions, so for example, in the workplace, thinking about um, broader initiatives that can like encompass everybody, right? So then everyone sort of has a stake in it. If in general, you have sort of more of an ability to have a flexible schedule for things relating to not just menstruation, but like menopause, pregnancy, breastfeeding, and other things, right? Then everyone can sort of see themselves as sort of part of wanting there to be change because, I mean, to some extent, people care about how it affects them. And this way, there's the potential for it to affect everybody. I can't tell you guys how much I've thought about you and your work and have mentioned it to others over the course of, say, the past six months as part of a project, which I will be sending you for comments as soon as we have a draft. I've been interviewing a number of founders, investors, others in the femtech, femhealth space, some of it focused on sexual wellness, some of it not. They all repeat a story that is almost identical to the one that Bridget told about the problems of the lack of decent sex education in the U.S. presenting really, in their view at least, some fairly serious knock-on effects. Because if you're out trying to raise millions of dollars from mostly male investors and VCs, then and they don't really understand anything about menstruation or the female body or or female needs then how how can they understand your your product right and the need for it and how can they ask sensible questions and nobody just gives you writes you a 10 million dollar check unless they can ask you questions and get reassurances about these things and the story is very similar with a recognition as well that it's a societal problem. It's not like, you know, men want to be ignorant of this necessarily. It's like we've we've kind of taught them that they're not supposed to know this stuff and we're we don't talk to them about it. I think that that's right. Um the the I know I received my sex ed in uh, a a class that was just girls, the boys were across Same. the hallway, but when when we treat it as something that we cannot talk to, to each other about just like we talk about you know, your wisdom teeth come in in your 20s and you might need uh, this. This is how your body might respond to it. That it, it seems like we we have to normalize these uh, conversations. But you mentioned femtech. Let's be clear that menstruation is also super profitable for yeah. um, some companies. And when yeah. there is a profit to be made, my guess is that investors of of all gender identities will be quick to follow. All right. Thank you so much. And then up next, we have Joseph. Yeah, thank you. So I was interested to see in the book that there was a brief mention about the potential role that shareholder activists may have to play in encouraging corporations to adopt standards that align with menstrual equity ideals. So I was wondering if either of you have come across any recent shareholder activist activities that include menstrual equity as a part of their ESG promoting framework. 
Because in my mind, I think of companies like the institutional shareholder services that provide proxy voting advice for institutional investors like brokerage firms, mutual funds, hedge funds, and pension funds. So I was wondering if um, the ISS or advising companies like it have, again, begun to include menstrual equity as a part of their ESG advice. And if not, do you all see this as an effective method of hurting corporations in the right direction from where they currently are? Thank you so much for that, Joseph. That is a sophisticated strategy that we're not yet seeing uh, developing in the shareholder space. Um, and as as you know, uh, ESG initiatives themselves are um, under somewhat of uh, somewhat uh, diminishing attractiveness to to many uh, co- companies. Um, as there is a struggle over what ESG means and its profitability. So far, we have seen some sort of grassroots organizing around um, corporate policies. Uh, Women's Voices for the Earth is uh, an amazing advocacy uh, and information organization that helped get the word out, for example, about some Procter & Gamble Uh, products and organize some old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground protests. We see social media being deployed uh, by women in Kenya, for example, complaining about uh, rashes related to fragrances and other adhesives used in products. But we have not yet seen the uh, shareholder space in the U.S. uh, taking up menstruation as an issue. I am hopeful that it could be one of uh, the next important issues that is um, uh, part of a robust gender equity agenda for uh, uh, shareholders, uh, et cetera. But so far, not yet. I am excited about that as a as a strong strategy. Thank you. And uh, sort of following up on that, uh, Dennis has a question about company policy as well and the role of what we've been talking about. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, um, so I'm curious how work from home uh, after the pandemic has affected people who have experienced these symptoms of menopause or pregnancy. So for example, we discussed uh, having the ability to control your own temperature, uh, to express milk or breastfeed, take bathroom breaks as needed. And I'm interested if there's been any research done on this area and how this might factor into companies that are debating or pushing for a return to office. That's a great question. Um, I don't know about a ton of specific research on how it's affected those symptoms yet, but I know that generally research has shown um, that the work from home policies that started getting adopted um, during the pandemic have actually been very beneficial to female employees, that they've actually, researchers have credited that as being one of the things that has kept female employees' um, work rates pretty high. I think in the context I've seen it, it had to do more with um, female employees who had young kids at home and that this was enabling them to better sort of balance childcare responsibilities because they weren't losing time to commuting and things like that. But I think absolutely, if you look at what people say they want, when, for example, you look at menopause policies that some workplaces are starting to adopt, especially in the UK, the desire for flexibility and working from home 
is something that's mentioned a lot. And I think you're absolutely right. It cuts across so many different things from being able to control temperature, being able to have access to your own bathroom, being able to go to the bathroom when you want, right? Breastfeeding, being able to just be on a more flexible schedule, being able to maybe like lie down and do some of your work while you're resting. It cuts across so many different processes and frankly, not just things that are reproduction related, right? All sorts of other medical needs. So absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that has been like a pushback against just employers saying everyone has to come back to the office. There's a lot of people who for different reasons, these and others are saying, now that I've like gotten a taste of what it's like to do remote work, for me, that really works well right now. Not to say that they will never come into the office and not to say that there aren't things that they benefit about that too, but that flexibility in particular, I think even more than just working from home, having flexibility to work from home when you need to is something that's really important to people. And of course, as part of that conversation, we recognize um, that not all workers have the ability or luxury of working from home. For folks who are in customer-facing, often low-wage jobs, um, uh, they don't have the option. And so to the extent that work from home has opened up many people's eyes to the need for flexibility, we really are hoping that flexibility can also apply to folks who have never been given the opportunity and will never be given the opportunity to work from home as well. Low-wage workers uh, in particular uh, deserve all of the same uh, flexibilities as well. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. I know I'm going into big law after graduation, and I noticed that a lot of the women at my firm are the ones who tend to take advantage of those work-from-home policies. So I think that's going to be really interesting to see where firms and companies go on that going forward. And then next up from Darius, we have a shift from more of a business policy quest, um, topic to more of a um, society broader policy topic. Hello again. Um, I think that one solution to menstrual stigma would be a socialist one in which menstrual products are made free as part of a wider universal healthcare initiative. Um, accommodations for different phases of the menstruation cycle would similarly be a right like any other physical accommodation. Do you all think that these solutions may be missing the point of addressing the unique stigma of menstruation by bundling them up with other considerations? So I'm interested in Bridget's reaction. I don't, I actually really tend towards um, solutions that are broader like that rather than holding out menstruation or let's say menopause is this really like unusual thing that needs a very specific solution where someone announces that they are going through menopause or they have their period and they need this special thing. I think the more that it is contextualized alongside other needs for accommodations, the better. It sort of goes back to the workplace changes we were talking about because there's no reason necessarily that it should be held out as its own thing, then that also raises this idea of people think, well, what's in it for me if only that gets accommodated? So I think for a lot of reasons, it's more likely to be effective if you have broad-based accommodations. And I also actually think it reduces stigma in some ways, because it's like it's just like a lot of other things that require accommodations. It isn't so different. But Bridget, I'm curious if that's your reaction as well. Well, 
Uh, Darius, I'd like to hear from from you a little more. What are you thinking about whether things like um, uh, wide availability of products or uh, workplace considerations, accommodations? Um, you had you had referenced are those missing the point? Um, is is your thought that maybe um, those aren't effective? I want to make sure I I'm I'm meeting you where where your concern is. Sure, um, and I I I don't have a big concern about it. Um, I think it would be effective. I was just wondering if maybe that's not shining a light on the stigma as much. Like it's kind of sweeping it under the rug by by bundling it up with a bunch of other things. Um, again, I think it, it would be probably more effective to do it this way. I was just wondering if this is maybe um, not addressing the actual unique stigma as much. I'm guessing that it could be possible to, that these would be effective mechanisms for dress, for addressing the immediate accommodation needs, right? Associated with menstruation, menopause, but but at the same time, it, um, if we bundle it together, right, with everything else, then we're still not talking about it. It may not. It may reinforce the sort of silence and or stigma. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, Darius. If this isn't no, that's you exactly meant. what I was thinking. Yeah, I think it's a it's absolutely a fair point. I'm not sure. I I'm willing to say that. Uh, that the stigma around menstruation is actually all that different than the stigma around menopause, for example. Um, there are different words that we use. There's some ageism folded in with menopause that isn't inherently in the menstruation conversation, but your point is well taken all the same, that, that, that in bundling, we necessarily lose some richness to, to the uh, analysis. So your Fair point and very much so. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I think you saying the phrase richness of the analysis tees up my next question perfectly. Um, so the piece does briefly touch on the fact that not everyone who menstruates is a woman. Many trans or people or non-binary people assigned female at birth still menstruate, but they're often discluded from discussions about this topic. Uh, do you think that there's any like unique challenges they face because of this? And what are potential solutions for people who are in this like menstrual advocacy space to be more accommodating? So I think here, um, here we certainly believe in the value of using gender inclusive language in recognizing uh, that menstruation uh, isn't solely a quote, woman's uh, domain, absolutely true. And the hyper way, the hyper gendered nature of menstrual products, menstrual advertising, discourse around menstruation can be very alienating uh, for trans and gender diverse uh, folks who um, don't have access to gender sensitive care and healthcare providers who can sensitively address their issues. And not all trans and gender non-binary or gender diverse folks experience gender dysphoria, but certainly for some folks, uh, for some trans men, going to a uh, gynecologist's office can be a source of emotional distress. So it is important that our conversation always broaden the lens to recognize that menstruation comes 
in many, many different forms with those unique challenges. And it's incumbent upon each and every one of us who takes part in this, in this justice conversation to be inclusive. That being said, let's also recognize the very gendered nature of the misogyny around uh, discourse around um, menstruation and menopause. And those two things can exist together, those two um, understandings that of the need to be inclusive in our approach, but also understanding the deeply gendered roots of, of that taboo and stigma and shame. Thank you so much. Um, and I think that sort of general topic of empathy is my the theme for my next question. Um, I'm not sure if this is like a commonly seen, so if you know this social media trend, but there's a current social media trend for men to try period simulators, uh, like period cramp simulators, uh, where they attach a machine to their privates, which uh, simulates muscle contractions through electrical stimuli. I'm not sure if you've seen the videos. It's usually a bunch of men experiencing a low-level cramp and then screaming in pain. Um, and I'm curious what effect do you think this sort of empathizing would have on period stigma? Like, in a sense, it's as close as we could get to Steinem's essay becoming reality. Um, and to what extent do we need to get men on board with these physical experiences for them to take them seriously? And should we instead just demand that they believe our pain without having to experience it themselves? I had not seen that. I'm curious how many of you had. I had not until Kate sent it to us. And then I, thanks a lot, Kate, for making me waste two, two hours or so out of the day when I should have been preparing for class. But yeah, they were they were amusing and disturbing, and I don't know. I, I'm interested to hear what you think about this. So I'm just hearing about it now, and I haven't watched the videos. I guess I have mixed feelings in that, okay, if that makes some people more empathetic, great. I don't know if there's, like, an aspect of it that it's, like, even if this wasn't the intention, like, a little bit of mockery or something. I don't know. I also, I don't love that. I guess the other thing is that I think one of the things that we talked about in our book is the different challenges. It's not just all about like, do you have bad cramps or not? I mean, a lot of what we talked about in the book was other things like in particular, like needing products, being able to afford products, right? So that like connects to issues of the tampon tax and also students being in schools and not having products. Um, people who are in prisons, not having products, um, things like that. And so it doesn't really touch on that. It certainly doesn't touch as much on things now we're thinking about with menopause, unless like you would have people like doing simulators for hot flashes and things like that. I guess I, I think it's fine, but I, I don't know that it really advances the discussion that much when we really want to think much more broadly about all of the different effects and then how workplaces and schools and society can sort of adjust and make you know, changes to take all of those things into account. And they can't change in a way that eliminates cramps. Now, sure, they can be more accommodating in terms of letting people take off, but I think it's really a bigger issue than that. So I don't know if it will really move the needle that much. Bridget, I saw that you have seen the videos, so I'm very curious on your specific thoughts. <laughs> I have seen the videos, but like Emily, I'm not sure um, whether they have a sort of instrumental function for 
those of us involved in this particular justice movement, there's a performative act aspect of the videos, like all of social media. And so I'm not calling out those videos as more performative than others. Um, but there's, they're being, you know, it, 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 these are videos that seek to feminize men for laughs. And that in and of itself is, um, is puzzling and plays into all sorts of stereotypes. Uh, for me, this is the equivalent of uh, the college fraternity that does the high heel run for charity every year. Isn't it funny to watch men try to run in high heels? Well, yeah, it is, but it's not funny when you're the one run in high heels trying to get away from someone who is trying to hurt you. Um, so, you know, that women's lives, women's pains, uh, women's pain that women's expense is the source of, of someone else's humor. Um, uh, you know, maybe I'm just one of those angry feminists who can't take a joke, but I'd be asking my male friends to try these anytime soon. I just want to say how impressive I find all of you. This is really um, an amazing experience to watch all of you with your wheels in motion and really just a, a privilege to be a part of and your preparation is is top notch and go UVA. Oh, thank you, Bridget. You fully agree. <laughs> I'm gonna take credit for them. I mean, I don't deserve it, but you know, who's gonna stop me? It's my podcast. I will turn it over to Joseph whenever you're ready. Thank you. So the lack of menstrual equity, as described, is something that spans across countries and cultures. Um, the book mentioned that other countries such as Scotland make their local governments provide um, such products free of charge. But in Japan, however, their efforts to provide menstrual leave policies have not been as well received. Um, the book mentions that individuals are concerned that taking leave under that policy may lead to negative perceptions and stigma that might be um, that might be generated out of that. Do you all foresee similar stigmatization occurring if, say, current breastfeeding or pregnancy policies were expanded to include menstruation? And maybe what, in your view, is the best way to approach this issue in the context of the workplace? I think it's that's an interesting question because we, we had talked earlier about pregnancy and breastfeeding. Historically, I think they're sort of seen as different. Um, and there are a bunch of reasons why they are not as stigmatized and laws protecting them have been earlier to pass. So one of them we already talked about was that with them, it's sort of like the employee can be like, well, it's not about me. It's about the baby. Right. And that's the same reason why lawmakers have sort of gotten behind that. Right. So as an employee, I think it is true that maybe people feel like a little bit less sort of that a stigma will attach to them if they need break time to go breastfeed, right? Or they need some other accommodation related to a pregnancy. Well, why is that? First of all, this idea of, oh, well, it's not anything for myself. I need it right now. And genuinely so, you know, because for my fetus or for the well-being of my child, right? So it's not about them asking for something for themselves. It's about their, their sort of being a mother. I think there are other reasons too why there's just less stigma in society surrounding those 
things. People are just sort of more public about pregnancy, in part because with pregnancy, you can't hide at a certain point that you're pregnant, right? Breastfeeding, in in many places right now, there's almost a stigma about not breastfeeding, right? That that is seen as like a good thing to do. So there are all these sort of positive things about being pregnant or being or breastfeeding, at least for some people. And so I think employees don't feel as nervous about revealing that they're in those situations, whereas you don't get the same halo around you necessarily by saying, oh, I'm like having really bad cramps or I'm having a hot flash. There's just more of like a sort of, I think, positive associations for some people with aspects of pregnancy and breastfeeding. And I think also when someone's an employee, when you think about pregnancy and breastfeeding, it's like a very time limited thing, right? Like for this many months, I'm going to be pregnant. I'm going to be breastfeeding for, you know, this, these many months. With menstruation, it's not like a time-limited thing. It's sort of just an ongoing thing that you're going to need, you know, maybe every month. So I think for all of those reasons, there's more stigma attached. I do think that menstruation and menopause should be folded into policies for pregnancy and breastfeeding. I think it would probably help employees to have it done that way. But even so, I think you may have employees who feel like a little more reluctant to avail themselves of the policy for menstruation and menopause than they would for pregnancy or breastfeeding. Thank you so much. And then I think we have one probably final question um, from from Gabriel, just asking a little bit more about uh, the future. Thank you. So question is pretty simple. Are you hopeful about the trajectory of menstrual politics and why? I am hopeful. I think we are in a time of extraordinary change. When Emily and I first started doing this work, um, over seven years ago, uh, attacks on menstrual products was uh, quite common in the United States. And practically speaking, um, that tampon tax has been repealed in state after state after state. There are only 21 states to go. And I am optimistic that the tampon tax will be repealed. Not that tax is the only issue, but it's a symbolic one. And it's one that's very salient. It's one we can see literally on receipts. And as we see the money going out of our wallets. That being said, I'm also cognizant. I'm aware of the way that um, bills making menstrual products available in schools are being politicized. These, These, at least for several years, garnered fantastic bipartisan response because keeping kids in school um, without stigma or shame really is a bipartisan issue. Unfortunately, uh, we see some state legislatures uh, blocking bills trying to put free menstrual products in schools. One opponent in Idaho, uh, for example, asked, uh, why are we talking about uh, the private parts of our children. Well, we're not talking about the private parts of children. We're talking about equal participation in school. Uh, Menstrual menstrual equity, period, poverty are being branded by some as woke terms where woke just doesn't mean uh, pay attention, uh, where woke there is uh, used as a negative. And I think that's unfortunate. So folks who work in this space, ourselves included, uh, who are interested in menstrual uh, uh, equity 
uh, menopause-related issues, and justice for all people, need to continue to emphasize again and again, this is about everybody in society being able to participate without regard to an involuntary biological process. And I'm also hopeful, I would just to pivot a little bit to the menopause topic, I'm hopeful because there is so much more sort of cultural attention to menopause than there had been. Um, You see really prominent people like Michelle Obama and Oprah Winfrey and celebrities like Drew Barrymore, like people are just being much more open about their own experiences with menopause. And the first step toward chipping away at stigma is just talking about it. And I, you're seeing more about menopause um, in terms of culture, you're seeing more medical research on menopause. And so I am optimistic about those developments. And I think they're also going to help push the law forward in terms of taking menopause into account. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Please feel free to link with us on LinkedIn. If you'd like to stay in touch, I'm on LinkedIn solely to link with students. So I'd welcome hearing from any of you and a privilege to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take care.